Welcome to the podcast Rise and Play. I am Sophie Vaux, your podcast host. I bring together leaders, entrepreneurs, fund makers, investors, and educators who are here to make a change in the industry. For a brighter and healthier future of the games we will make, and how we will make them. We're here to start a conversation because listening and asking the hard questions is sometimes enough to inspire change in us, to take the leap to. Let's begin. Today, I'm super excited to have with me Anina Selven. So let me introduce you more about my guest today. Anina doesn't have the usual story. That's why I wanted also to share more her background. She started like where she really dreamed of owning her own restaurant, to move away from home, still in high school at 16, quite young, to work in a restaurant business and uh, study to be a chef. So that's how she started actually her life and career. But in 2006, she realized she understood very little of the business side of restaurants and decided to apply to business school in Helsinki. And what she studied was about banking, pre-crisis, which she was not that interested in, and applied to study corporate finance in the US in a school in Madison. After she finished her master in finance at 23 years old, fun fact, there were only two women in her class, the rest were only men. She went back to Helsinki Startup Sim as it was booming. And after a job in startup consulting, so to create the finance department, raising capital and valuation, she's today the CFO at Next Games, a game company based in Helsinki and a public company. So hi, Anina. Super nice to have you. How are you today? Hi, Sophie. So nice to, for you to invite me to your podcast. I'm really well. It's, you know, sun, sun is shining, so it's a good day. <laughs> Yeah, it's very hot days. In Berlin as well, it's very hot. I heard this well, it's very hot in Finland these days. Yes. Very <laughs> hot. <laughs> as hot as it can be. Exactly. For a Finn, for a Finn it's very hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let me begin maybe the conversation today, because you have quite a varied background and you touch even like non-gaming food business, which I love food business as well. How did you end up working in games? Can you walk us through a bit your journey? Yeah, so your intro was pretty good. Um, basically, back in 2012, I ended up moving back to to Finland from the US. And I started working a lot in the startup scene. So, you know, kind of Slush was having its first successful events. The first Slush I ever went to, it was like 50 people and pretty small and, you know, intimate, but with great investors. So really working with sort of a lot of startup companies and and I kind of had a focus on tech and sort of medical companies as well. That was sort of my portfolio at the time, but basically helping companies value invest in the sort of value intangible assets. So assets that aren't, you know, they're not physically existing, they're virtually going to be created. So how do you put a number on that? And within that kind of company I was working with, Temu, who's the CEO of Next Games, he had reached out to them. I don't remember how he got the recommendation, but he reached out um, to my boss and the partner of the firm at the time and was looking for kind of financial support or finance help. And then they had gone through, I believe, some of the more top tier, like there were a couple of partners ahead of me uh, or above me in the organization. And then eventually the, the partner called me up and said, hey, listen, you know, Demo isn't hasn't been pleased so far with the people he discussed from our company, and I think you're actually going to be a great fit because you know you do get tech and you know uh, understand sort of the gaming business and things like this. You played mobile games, and so uh, so that's sort of how I in, initially met with Demo, and then we had a meeting, and then he said, "Yeah, you know, she gets it." So so he said, "Okay, I'll work with her." And at that point in time, I was just kind of hired into Next Games as a consultant, really, to work on you know. They had just launched, I think, Compass Point West at that time, and No Man's Land wasn't even released yet. That that didn't come until 2015. So I started working with them on their first mergers and acquisitions transaction and sort of like with setting up how No Man's Land was going to be successful, worked on the finance with them. And then uh, pretty quickly, Temu said, hey, how about you come work for us full time in-house at Next Games? And yeah, it was kind of Let's see, an exciting thing at that time, I had multiple offers uh, where I could have been going. I was offered to become an equity partner in the firm that I was in, in the consulting firm. And I had another offer as well on the table to be sort of a, to be a CFO. But then, and the situation with Next Games at the time was that there was about six months of runway left. So the company was not financially on 
in, in any way, like on really stable grounds before, of course, the release of the first title. But, you know, I've always been a person, I found it like super exciting. I, it wasn't terrifying to me at all. I thought it was exciting and I thought this is going to be easy to turn around, like no problem at all. And we did, you know, so, and I thought at the time, you know, I kind of come back from the US. I was still living in a one bedroom apartment, like rental. I was like, worst case happens and everything fails. I can always go back to be a waitress and I could still pay my rent. So it felt like there's sort of zero risk. There, there wasn't any skin in the game in that sense for me at that point in time. And I felt if you're ever going to make the leap, you have to do it when you're young. Cause when you're married, you got kids, it's not the same as saying I'm going to step away from a well-paying job. So I just figured that's going to be exciting to do and haven't regretted it at all. Of course. So. I love the thinking you had about like your worst case scenario. You are talking actually very clearly about it and what bad can happen. Just accepting the fact, and I think it's something to acknowledge because you are have high studies, a career, and it's okay. I can go back to doing wait waiter job earn money and I think this uh, also is a way of thinking where then you are not making decisions uh, based on fears but more by opportunity and you accept already the outcome if it doesn't go well that you already accepted this outcome so I think it's amazing to have still this thinking when you're already in a high position uh, that's impressive yeah like I try to always think that way it's like I think too much people are so afraid of You know, I wrote a post even about the fear of other people's opinion, but in general, even our own opinions, you know, what will it look like if I fail, if, mm -hmm. if things don't go the way? And the truth is like, you pick yourself up. I've done it so many times, you know, it's okay. You fail, pick yourself up, you do better next time. So that's the worst that happens. Yeah. And I have a similar thinking, by the way, that's why it's really funny to listen to you because <laughs> that helps actually to just make bold decisions and not again be held back by your fears and what can go wrong because you already accept it you know what can go wrong and you're fine with that yeah I feel like in what you say like really this spirit like you live once and live fully you know because you have just one life and make it count <laughs> absolutely 100% and I think it comes Um, or I've spoken about like how I think sometimes these decisions can come more naturally if the background is that you've always had to fight for it. You know, when it when it was never easy, that I think that kind of thinking is easier to adapt to because it feels like, well, if anything was never handed to me, if you take that away, then what does that matter really? You know, how bad is that? It's not that bad. Yeah. I will come back a bit later on that, like these things you have to fight for. And I think that becomes a part of your identity as well, how you approach life. So here, understanding a bit further as well, like about your background and your choice of career, I was curious as well to understand how did you make it like really went further into finance? You know, what attracted you to really, because you started again from business uh, of a food chef and, and so on. Well, actually... What happened was when I got to the U.S., and I actually have a funny story about that as well, um, I had been approved to sort of most of the, so I had started my studies in Finland, and I was approved to most of the studies, but there was one course that I really wanted to take that I had not been pre-approved for, which was for these kind of, this startup and intangible asset valuation. And I didn't even know the day before school if I was approved to go to that course because they were looking at my credentials and, and apparently no non-American student had ever been accepted into the program because it was they were working with Microsoft and Amazon and we had like Amazon CFO giving us a case and things like this. So and I kind of I guess I didn't get that when I was applying for the course. I didn't know it was a big deal. Uh, sometimes it's good to be naive. So then eventually I was just kind of annoyed waiting, like, well, I've, could they now tell me? And then I got the email that said, hey, you got approved and you have to be at 1 p.m. or whatever for the intro class. And so I was like, oh, no, I'm starting business school. And I was just it was hot. And I'm in, like, I'm seriously I'm in hot pants and a T-shirt. Right. Like I didn't know that school would start today because I didn't know if I was approved for the course. And I'm looking and I like have 10 minutes to run to the uh, business class. So I run there and I'm thinking I'm just going to all these other people are dressed up, you know, in this master's program with like suits and stuff and like nice shirts. And I'm just going to go hide somewhere and no one will notice me. I'll say nothing and just kind of like go in a corner. And of course, the teacher is like, 
oh, and then for the first time, we have a non-American student uh, who's like brilliant, going to be joining us for this course. And I'm so <laughs> excited to have her here. Like, Anina, can you stand up wherever you are? And of course, I wanted to die. Like, I wanted to absolutely die. Uh, but I was like, okay, well, we're going to stand up and do it, right? And then I think that kind of start just feeling 150 people looking at me. And I look like an idiot, of course, in comparison to them who had like, you know, were nicely business dressed. And I just, I looked horrible. I think that made me work so much harder in the beginning of that course, because I was like, now I have to prove to everyone I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm actually smart. And, you know, I have the capability of working in, in finance and with startups. So I think I put more effort into that than maybe I would have done otherwise. I don't know. And so then that got me really, really intrigued into that area. And I got thrown on these super difficult, but very excited kind of projects in there. And that's where I think then my stronger passion towards finance started happening because I had really not before that it was like the means to an end. So it was like, I have to understand finance and business so that I can get this restaurant so that I don't make these mistakes that people do when they start up mm -hmm. restaurants. So I have to understand how business and money works and how you, how you do all these things so I can do what I really love, which is run this business. And then when I started working in that course, I was like, wait a minute, I actually love the whole principle around how we're doing these things. This is exciting to me. And I kind of felt that for the first time. And I had a really good professor as well. So I think that was the kind of starting seed from it to kind of switch that career and switch that thinking. Uh -huh. That's great. That's a great anecdote, by the way. It's, um, you know, some people may spend their life looking for things they're passionate about. And it sounds to me like, you were really in the discovery process and just going for the thing that uh, w whatever was motivating you to achieve and then discovering through the process that you were really into it and then you have really your strong career now around finance. So, uh, and congratulations for making it into a promotion as a first non-American. It's, it's quite an achievement. Uh, yeah, and I remember also feeling the first few days of school in the US, I felt really malplaced because of this. So many people who came into that, you know, master's program, they were just so sure of what they wanted in life and, you know, even where they were going to work and how they were going to build this CV. And I had, at that point in time, I really had no strong vision like that. It definitely was for me a dynamic process. And then in the beginning, I felt a little lost about that, to be honest, because I felt like there were so many people who just knew what they wanted out of life. And I really didn't know what fully I wanted out of life, except I, I knew I loved the idea of owning my own restaurant. And then that changed. And then it was a whole process of being okay with that, changing as a person and changing what I want to do for a living and the passion around it. So, Yeah. And I see in your choices, because what is impressive to me, I, I can feel through your choice, you're not afraid to make a change, go for it. And even like going to the US, applying to your school. And I see something like as a core in your decision making that when it doesn't suit you, you make the change, you pivot and you go for it and you make really important changes. So I was really curious of how much do you understand this drive you have? Like what was really motivating you to just, I'm going to do it, that can go wrong and this, I accept it to really give you this motivation to make a change. Because it's not a given, I wanted to say. You know, some people can analyze their whole life and sit on the side and just observe what can happen. But you're a doer and you found your path, you know. So do you know, can mm -hmm. you share more about the background of this? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't think, you know, I'll ever know fully what has kind of made me into who I am and why that's such a strong thing. I know I've had my adversities with my health early on in my life and just sort of like some really bad instances, or like I've had a lot of surgeries and a lot of things to go through. And so for me, even graduating high school wasn't a given because I, I was so sick when I was about 16. Uh, for six months, I was in the hospital, uh, in and out, couldn't go to classes and sort of everyone was expecting me to not be able to graduate high school. And I was like, screw it, I'm going to do it. So, but why exactly that feeling? Why, why I didn't think, oh, I'll just take an extra year before I graduate high school, or I'll just take break from this and I'm putting too much pressure on myself. I can't answer why, where that comes from, but I can say that ever since like at a very young age, 
whenever adversities kind of come my way, I've made a point of saying, no, like I, I have control of my own life. No one else does. I can decide if I want to succeed. I can decide if I want to give up and I don't want to give up. And this is then what I, then I need to put in the work for it. But what, where exactly that comes from, I don't know exactly how that is. <laughs> But I, I can see for sure some connections and it's just to, to me, it sounds like from very young age, you had that first for life of doing things and Uh, maybe like not knowing what the future has, make the time count, you know, like make your life meaningful. So it's very inspiring and awesome what you've been doing. <laughs> Thanks. A bit further as well, because how uh, we get to know each other, of course, on LinkedIn, I followed a lot of your posts and a lot of content that resonated with me and the things I'm advocating for. So I was really curious how you started to be more vocal on, uh, you know, on your public person like advocating on either ua practices finance practices or women in games how did it all start and where are you in this journey yeah so i think for me i think the turning point really for this was sort of like when the black lives matter protests sort of broke out in the u.s and i have a lot of friends there and it was heartbreaking to watch it was really concerning for me and it was really hard to know myself as well, like, what can I do to help from here? I can't even go there, you know, just reaching out and trying to be the best support that I could be. And of course, I participated in protests in, in Finland. But what I saw sort of happening, and I, and it was, I think, wildly written about in general for different industries, but I think less addressed in the gaming industry, but sort of really bothered me was when some games companies sort of started putting out these you know, black tiles or, you know, this sort of PR message around how much they support Black Lives Matter movement. And, uh, you know, those who, who know me well at Next Games know that that actually it fundamentally pissed me off. So <laughs> we had we had a management meeting where we were discussing, like, how can we show our support for the absolutely horrendous things that are happening in the U.S.? And we had a really genuine conversation where I said, that I think the most important thing is to show the change and build a change within the company. It's not about posting a PR message, especially if you cannot back that up. And I think my main issue with the posts that were kind of floating around was that everyone in gaming, I'm going to say everyone, but at least all of us in gaming know that there are severe issues. You know, you look at the BIPOC community, you look at women, you look at the lack of diversity in leadership positions, even in middle management, especially when it's coming to founding companies, right? You have a very homogenic kind of pool of people who tend to get the same roles, just switching from one company to another. And there's very little movement in that. There has been absolutely horrendous like cases of sexual harassment for multiple companies that are being addressed in one way or another, but these allegations are popping up left and right. So to me, it felt like this is just disingenuine. You know, I'm, I'm 100% sure the companies didn't mean it that way, but it felt to me like really, really disingenuine that we're not having a conversation about this. That's not where the starting point is. We aren't sitting down with all of these game companies who have hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, and saying, we're in a position where we can change things. How do we do that? That's not what we're doing. We're not even willing to discuss a lot of these issues. We're pretending they don't exist. And then we're posting on social media kind of this generic message of support. And That hit me to the core. I don't know what it was about that, but that really, you know, it just sort of hit me to the core. And from there, I kind of, it still took me a while, but then I did my first kind of diversity post after that because I just wanted to even bring this conversation to, to topic because it is a big one and we need to have it. Yeah. And I'm very grateful that also you started the conversation around it and I could see a lot of resonance. Uh, support and debate and at least there's a conversation so you definitely helped in creating this conversation as well on a few social media a bit further then on this turning point and this initiative you had you talked also about how at next games you talked about it you you look into like what changes can you do inside the company so can you walk us through as well like several changes you had like walk the talk basically yeah so that was the first conversation we had sort of internally and obviously super thankful that 
that Next Games is a company where where this is taken seriously and we're not pretending to be perfect. You know, no one is. We're all trying to do better all the time, hopefully. And so the first thing that we started thinking about was how do we build a structure where there's executive management support? So there's support from the top level, but the actions need to be within the organization. So there needs to be happening change within the organization. Executive management can't be the change. We can only make sure we can facilitate it. So we started, actually, the first initiative was was for Pride, because Pride Week in Finland was coinciding with the Black Lives Matters protest. And, and what we did to kick off the diversity, inclusion, and belonging was that we held a presentation about kind of things that people in Finland even don't understand about the issues surrounding LGBTQ rights. We think it's sort of everything's okay, and it's not. For example, gay couples still can't use surrogates to have their own children. There has been very much contention about adoption. Many things were not legal until 2010, some things even 2016. So still statistics show 50% of the gay community or LGBTQ community is not comfortable expressing their own identity publicly. So there's a lot of issues that still exist, but they're not being talked about because Finland and people in Finland doesn't want to see ourselves as something else but inclusive. So we're kind of turning a blind eye to these issues and we're saying, oh, no, everything's legal. You know, we're good. So the first thing that we did was we just had a presentation about enlightenment of, hey, there are still issues that need to be addressed. And some of those relate to work culture. And we talked about the strong culture of saunas in Finland and how that may make some people feel uncomfortable who don't enjoy being naked with other colleagues and what pressure that can put on you in a work-related environment. So that was sort of the kickoff. And from there, we announced the diversity and inclusion belonging kind of group which is separate from those in executive management, but I am the kind of sponsor person in executive management, which means the DIB group is doing all of these really nice initiatives all the time. If there's any issue why that would not be moving forward for whatever reason, then they have the straight kind of top line access to me and I will make whatever problems go away, whether it's they need funding or there's pushback, whatever it is, it's my job to bring it up and say, hey, this is a topic of conversation or priority that we need to make sure everyone gets behind. So that's how we have sort of structured it. And when you started to make these changes, how was the reaction of the whole company, of employees, of the buy-in, or how did it go? I think we have had great buy-in. I think there's always the conversation. Some people are always saying, well, I'm not understanding really what the problem is. Like, what's the problem we're solving? Do we have a problem? But I think the majority by far was really standing behind this and saying, this is amazing. This is so great that we start to think about these things. So, and that we start to talk about these things. I would say 99% positive. And then there's always going to be the people who say, well, this isn't relevant to me or it's not relevant to us. And I don't understand how that's relevant. But that's not a no. That's more of a, how can we work together to get to a place where everyone understands that this is, it's a joint effort. We have to all pay attention to this to get change to happen. Yeah, I think it's a great example as well of a change where it starts from the top. And I understand here that whether you were the initiator of a conversation or others were also concerned, you needed really as well like alignment on the leadership to make it as an important topic. And how did this conversation go? Was it like really you were supported from day one or it needed like more convincing, I don't know, data or whatever to support like that's a strategic position for us as a company? Yeah, I think for us, it was incredibly easy. Um, I'm going to say that I think the I think there was in in one way. And that's why I'm also saying like why it's so important to discuss the issues of this in leadership as well. It's like many people have commented that it feels like a relief that there's a woman in executive management. And so I can imagine how it feels for people who don't feel like they are being represented in executive management, because that's still the truth for many, many people in gaming mm -hmm. and in the companies that they work for, including ours. And so to not have that relief feeling of thinking there's somebody there who will understand my voice has to be so difficult for so many people in the gaming industry. And I think for us, That wasn't a hard sell because Demo has been with me on this journey of being a young CFO and, you know, listing the company and 
And he has seen and been present for many of the struggles that have been directed towards me. So when I brought this subject up, you know, kind of really in a manner where I said, I think, you know, we should do something bigger. He had already actually brought it up himself with uh, with our people and culture. We kind of came from separate angles at the same time with Black Lives Matter. And he really was like adamant that we need to be doing something. But of course, he was like, well, who am I? What am I going to say? Who, who am I to say? I, am I not part of the problem kind of thinking, you know, kind of jokingly? That's why I think he's been such a great uh, role here, because he is so enabling for this successful change to to happen and that you have to be you have to have a CEO that supports this and believes this cause for sure yeah I think that's great that you were aligned like this from the beginning that uh, as a CEO that he really cares about the topic and as well having you in the, the executive position to also show you know or talk about the struggles the challenges and all these things it's a great case here an example of how it becomes again a strategic point in the organization when the leadership really cares about it. So I hope it inspires also other organization and leaders listening here that it starts again from the top if you really want to make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely say that at the end of the day, it has to start from executive management saying, even if you have an executive management that isn't diverse, then it at least has to start by saying, we know we're not. And we're going to do our best, nonetheless, to create change. But you have to be able to first say that out loud. You have to first be able to say, I understand that who I am or where I come from, I cannot relate to what many of you are going through. But help us understand how we can create change so that you feel comfortable working for us. That You, you have to start there. Yeah. I think what you point out, it's really a great level of awareness That of course, you fight for the things that it's natural and human that are your problems, but acknowledging that there is a problem that is not yours, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, takes a really a certain level of awareness that I'm impressed again, like with a level of thinking, like for a leadership of a game company to even have this level of awareness. So again, something to acknowledge and uh, feel proud about. I don't know your CEO, but it sounds like a great person. <laughs> He's absolutely a great person. And I'll say that as well. It's sometimes with sadness that I think about the fact that I could have never probably made it to where I am today if it wasn't the support of the CEO and the like the unconditional support of the CEO and the board, uh, also the board members, I want to mention those, that I have gotten. But the world is the way it is. So I think, again, from their part, that knowledge and awareness to just have this absolute faith and unconditional support for me has been really incredible to see. So, And I think that's another sign of the fact of how important it is that it starts at the very, very top, because you cannot enable change if that support and that belief doesn't come from the very, very top. Yeah, agreed. And now a bit further to you, Anina. I was curious as well, because you have quite a big position a CFO of a public company, and I was still in Finland when that happened. So that was a big event locally, you know, like, wow, game company doing an exit. And then I was at Rovio and Rovio came a little after. So how do you organize your life, your work responsibility? I was more curious, like, how do you manage your time? So, of course, it's not perfect. And those who also know me know I've, I've struggled with periods of, like, complete work stress and burnout and all those types of things. I think you have to be aware that that is something whenever you get into these executive positions that you're going to have to deal with. But I have tried to sort of identify those things that are the sacrifices that I have to make and then identify the things that I never want to compromise on. And what I mean by that is if you compromise on things that are incredibly important to you, whatever happens, you're going to go down in life and be bitter about it. But then on the other hand, if there are things that you're willing to compromise on that weren't that important to you, then you always feel like you win no matter what. But you have to have, as you mentioned earlier, you have to have very strong self-awareness about what is it that you're sacrificing. So when we started the IPO and the process, when I was the CFO for Next Games, or is the CFO for Next Games as we start this process, at that point in time, I really had this thought of like, Is it incredibly important for me right now to be in a stable relationship or, or get married? And I was only 27 at the time. And 
I just came to the conclusion that it's not going to be a priority for me. I want to see and explore where this journey is taking me. And I'm willing to do that at the cost of the fact that I'm not going to probably find the love of my life in the next year or two years, because I will be putting all of my effort into next games and I will be traveling. And so instead, I made that experience this incredible journey of seeing the world. So not only just, of course, traveling with next games, but then when you get the flight points and all these types of things, I would extend my trips. And I would, if I had a meeting on a Monday, I would pay like whatever the the difference of the fees to fly on a Friday and spend the weekend somewhere or, you know, so I was so blessed that throughout that journey, what I instead got to do was see my friends get married in Chicago, see my friends get married all over the world. I've been part of incredibly important events all over in Milwaukee, you know, with all the people I studied with. So I'd make these detours from any kind of work trip. And I felt incredibly blessed that I have been able to do that because how many other people can just on a few days notice fly in for a wedding, right? To the US. So that's been, I just had to kind of decide on these things of like, how am I going to create an experience that I love while I still have to give up something else? And that's kind of how I try to keep my life in balance. You mentioned a few important points I'd like to take a step back on. I think the first thing is, that's why I'm so happy to have you on the podcast, these choices and sacrifices you talk about that sometimes we do have to make. And yes, it could be felt as a sacrifice, but when you have clarity on where are your priorities of life now, then you can turn it around, like really enjoy yourself. You know, it's for that time. So I think the first really thing that of course comes a lot in the mind of women that grow in career, especially executive position is, am I trading for a personal life, family life, or am I going for this, you know? And one thing is really, I wanted to say as well, share with the audience based on my personal experience is really listening to yourself and embracing to be yourself and not feel sorry for what you love, of uh, what you care about. Because the reality, there are a lot of expectations also of society. Expectation of family, that's normal. You know, they, they want the best based on what they have seen and known of your friends around. So there's also pressure. And I have to say, also as women in executive position, there's not always some support and there's, you know, this expectation of if you choose a path more with the work by yourself and move away for a moment of a personal life, there will be, of course, judgments, opinions of a question like, oh, is it not the time for you to settle? Or why are you doing this? So it really requires an internal strength and clarity of why you make this choice and feel good about it. So I think it was really important as well. Thanks for sharing but I made similar choice in my 27. I moved to Berlin, actually. I could have gone on with the house, the husband, the family and everything. But I was happy with my choice. I felt it was not the moment for the stop or let's say the moment to settle. So it takes courage and clarity. And another thing here is I'm, again, very inspired that how you make it really as an opportunity and enjoy yourself. I think that's what is really important in the end for the process. And there are opportunities sometimes that really are once in a lifetime and the worst that can happen is the feeling of regret when you actually made different choice and then you cannot take back this moment that where you could go all around the world and do these amazing things and trips you've done yeah and it's so even in hindsight it's so important to have that honest conversation with with oneself because i remember thinking when even when we ipo'd next games that no matter what happens to this company in good or bad the end of this experience has to feel for me like, my gosh, I'm so proud I got to list the first mobile games company in Finland. Yes, It can't be the rest of the outcome. It has to be the process of doing it. And I think that's where, as women, we have to be very honest about what's making us happy at a particular point in time. And again, I think a huge range of different opinions of on this is allowed. I can also say like, Surely it would have been totally fine for someone else to think, no, I'm going to IPO, but I'm going to be at the same time, you know, get married and and be a mom and, and have kids and do all these things. And I think that's completely fine as well. For me, I know myself and I knew that it would tear me apart to think that I have to be at two places at one time, that it isn't something that I was mentally willing to put myself to go through because I tend to do things like 110%. So for me, it wasn't an option, but that doesn't mean that there aren't 
a huge amount of people who could have absolutely made the choice to do both. So, and I think that's really important too. If that's how you feel as a person, then that is completely like, go for it, right? Yeah. And for this process of thinking, I was curious, did you have some um, support to help you reflect, like coaching uh, to rehab this clarity through this process or it was really your own internal process? I mean, I have I have zero shame in saying that like over the last three years, I've done quite a lot of therapy, actually, both like sort of a life coach type and then also actually more psychologist type things. And I think for me, it works. Again, people have different opinions. For me, it works to help myself bring clarity to my thoughts on my journey and, you know, where I'm going and what makes me really upset because as what makes me happy, what makes me upset, I think as people, we tend to be very good at hiding our true emotions from ourselves. So I find it to be very, like really, really good. I don't see anything negative with it at all. Yes. I think it gives an opportunity to be honest with yourself. At least, at least it's giving an opportunity for me to be very honest with myself. And though it's not always enjoyable, it's always useful. So I highly recommend it. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for sharing. And I take this opportunity to say that I have used a lot also of either coaching, personal coaching or therapy to gain more clarity in these questions because we're in a transition of generation as well where the expectation from the past, there's how we find ourselves a path. And it could be a lonely journey and having someone like a professional who can support and help clarify this question is a big change. And I would say this is a path of growth, personal growth and development. So Absolutely. I really double down on what you just shared. Here as well, like in the life management questions, curious about your life or daily routine. What are the things that are helping you to just get your life together, responsibility and all these things we discussed? Yeah, so I, I started taking, I think, better control of my life around the pandemic, maybe kind of pre-pandemic as well, but some things I've been doing for a long time. So I have been intermittent fasting since the, before that was even a thing. I didn't even know it was a thing when I started doing that. So since 2012, mm -hmm. I don't eat anything after basically 8 p.m. in the evening until about noon the next day. So basically the 16 hour, whatever it is. So I'll just have coffee in the morning. So that's something that I 100% live by. And it's not even a, it's not a decision that I wake up in the morning and I don't have breakfast. Like eating breakfast would feel weird to me. I can't do it. So that's something that I do. I limit my coffee intake these days, try to not have more than two cups of coffee. That's sort of it. Then another thing I sort of stand really hard on is I do take 10,000 steps every day and I don't care what the weather is. That's it for me was almost like a mental exercise when I mm -hmm. started it because, you know, we live in Finland and these days it's great when it's summer and the weather is beautiful. But like, can I get my mind to wrap around the fact that when it's a blizzard out there that I still go out and I walk and I get my 10,000 steps. So that was a challenge I put for myself like January, February this year. And I was out every day doing 10,000 steps. And those who live in Finland know that we had incredibly cold days, like negative 26. And we had some crazy snowstorms and we've had some insane weather And people have been laughing, you know, at my Instagram. I sometimes post these videos when I walk and like the storm is just like <laughs> coming my way. But it was just something I was like, this is both a mental and a physical thing. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I want to be able to move my body to feel great about it. And mentally to look out and say, it doesn't matter what the world throws at me. I'm going to get my 10,000 steps has shown to keep me really, really sane. So that's something I enjoy doing a lot. Yeah. Great. Thanks for the tips. I hear that you have quite a strong, I think, routine and discipline, which is really hard to have personally. And uh, that's the key, I think, of changes as well, like creating good habits and uh, following through. So good inspiration as well of routine. Because we see a lot the outside, you know, of people and how they yeah. organize, but there's a lot of work as well behind the curtains of how you manage your life. Yes, and I don't remember who it's that says that uh, you only grow in uncomfortable situations. So it's only when you place yourself in situations that feel uncomfortable that you can really grow and learn and reflect. So that's what I try to do. And then, of course, what I always try to also remind myself of is that 
what's comfortable for me can be uncomfortable for someone else and vice versa, right? So for example, for me, giving up sugar isn't uncomfortable because I don't like anything that tastes sweet. So then saying to myself, oh, well, just don't eat any candy isn't about placing me in an uncomfortable situation. I would never eat candy. I don't happen to like sugar. So it's not a challenge and it doesn't count as one. It has to be something that feels like this is pushing me to the edge. And a bit further than uh, on your personal values, I wanted also to touch upon on a topic really also related to maybe difficult situations and moments with Next Games where you had to make a hard decision and related to your personal values, how it went for you. Could you tell us more about some situations where really you had to have a clarity on what's important for you and how you will manage it as well as an organization and with uh, employees? Yeah, so... Everyone at Next Games knows that I'm like a straight shooter, very much so. There won't be a situation where I wouldn't speak my mind. So you never have to be worried about that with me. Uh, I definitely say, say my opinion as it is. Uh, there's no second guessing in that. But for me, some of the strongest values also, not just as a CFO, but as, as a management member and uh, a member of executive management, it's, uh, it's super important, I feel like, to, be, to have high integrity and honesty and trust. And so I think sometimes, and especially in gaming, but in many instances, that can be confused with not being able to make hard decisions. And they're two very different things. So, for example, it's not a secret that Next Games had really difficult financial struggles back in 2018. And as a result of that, we had to start consultations, which is a kind of legal finished term, but basically we had to let people go and we had to let a lot of people go. We were almost 176 people and we had to go down to about, I think at the end of it, we were about 115. So that's a lot. And what I remember at that point in time was we have caring, curiosity and courage are the values uh, at the company. And I've really thought about how can I apply this while making these sort of hard decisions. And Part of it was, I remember thinking we were working overtime with the finance department to get the numbers right. So one of the worst things that you can do is that you don't rip the bandaid off. You say, oh, well, we're going to let go of a few and then we'll again start the whole thing over and let go of a few more. And then you again start the whole process over and you keep kind of cutting up this wound that's never healing. And you see it with so many companies. So one of the things was that I thought I'm not going to compromise on when I present what the numbers look like. I'm going to give this honest opinion on this is how many people we can be. And it can sound terrifying, but that's what the numbers are telling us right now. And that's more fair than going back and forth and try to sort of let go of as few as possible. So Mm -hmm. that was like one of the things I started doing at that point in time. And the other thing was I did not want to leave next games under any circumstances. So first of all, I wanted to show up every day by the coffee machine so that everyone can see my face. And if there's disappointment and if there's anger, then I'm here and I'm hearing you. And I get that, you know, I'm not going to hide away in an office somewhere and no one ever sees me or speaks to me. Like I'm right here. Mm -hmm. And all of this disappointment, all of this anger, everything that you're feeling, yeah. you can reach out to me or you can come and talk to me at any point in time about that. And I think everyone in executive management did that. You know, our CEO did it. Everyone did that. And I feel like, that, I mean, that's courage and that's caring to say we're here. And we started doing management Q&As, which was people could anonymously ask us questions and we would answer all of them, no matter how hard they were. Sometimes we had to, you know, sometimes you have to rephrase them. Like if it's about a person or something, you can't really exactly read them the way they are. But that was something I read in a book about Yahoo, actually, a really good book about Yahoo, that they had done these management Q&As during a tough time and they were really appreciated. So we had a conversation about that and we started doing management Q&As as well and they worked sort of really well. And then the other thing I really wanted to sort of, I really wanted to stay at Next Games to prove to myself and to prove to everyone that, that you know, I believe in this company. A struggle is just a struggle. I believe in this company and we can turn it around and we can make it successful. I think a lot of times when there are 
hard times in companies, what you do is you hire an external consultant or somebody who comes in and just kind of makes the decisions for you. And then, you know, you can place all your hate on them and then they leave when everything's Mm -hmm. done. And then executive management kind of says like, oh, well, it was, you know, Boston Consulting Group or whoever, you know, (laughs) who decided how we're going to be doing this. And we're not, you know, they said this needs to be done this way. And you don't, you kind of step away from that. And I had been part of that process as a consultant for another company that was going bankrupt. And I was the consultant who handled the bankruptcy. And so for me, and I think for all of us in executive management and them included, we were like, that's going to be a no-go. You know, we want to create this feeling of, we understand that things didn't go the way that we wanted. We made some mistakes. We're going to fix all of this and we're rebuilding together. And we're all standing here strong after this. And we're going to do this together and we're going to write it out. But I think particularly for CFOs, one investor told me, I'm not going to mention who it was, once we had raised additional capital and got the company back on its feet, said that the world has two types of CFOs Mm -hmm. and it's filled with those who are fair weather CFOs. But there are very few who have kind of the courage and the balls to stay and rebuild and that that skill set is actually incredibly unique in this space because most CFOs want to go into a company that's on a growth path and they just kind of ride that wave instead of saying, hey, I'm going to get my hands dirty and rebuild this thing. But I get a sick pleasure almost out of doing that. I really like rebuilding things and I like making things better and improving them. So I've enjoyed the process, even though it was a tough process. I think professionally, it's been a lot to learn and I found that really interesting. It's really a great example and thanks for sharing it into details really a phase that is so difficult what you call consultation and I've been through some waves as well like it happens quite often actually in game companies and what I take away from this is really if one word I uh, take away is really courage because the courage to take responsibility I think you as a leadership team you took full responsibility you were here you were not going away you didn't externalize it and you went through like the whole journey, even in the low times, and also the courage to show up and to confront. Uh, of course, it's never easy. There's a lot of anger, frustration, and it's normal <laughs> and not run away. So again, great example as well. And you leave your values and that kind of example shows how much as well as next games, you really live by your values and your personal values as well yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And these processes, they're always hard and there's no way of doing them perfectly. But I think the most important thing is that you can at least walk away and saying, holding your head high in a way where you said, okay, by the end of this process, I feel like I've carried the responsibility of this burden. I didn't hide and I didn't disappear. And I think that's really important if you want to rebuild a successful company that you do that. And let's dive a bit further in the topic that we have talked a bit about it, but uh, it's also important always for uh, me in the, on this podcast and particularly like diversity and inclusion. And we touched a bit upon it, but I wanted to understand more from you. Although I understand you also made initiative internally at Next Games. What are the challenges you meet and the resistance you meet on the topic, especially now you've been more visible and vocal about the things you care about so not inside the company but outside the company and what are your thoughts you know opinions about it yeah so i think it, it's such a deep rooted problem and what i kind of always want to say is that the, the the problem why this is so deep rooted is that we are not sharing the same reality and that makes problems incredibly difficult to address so even if you think about an industry like banking who is horrendous in many ways, they never pretend they're not, right? Like even during the financial crisis when Goldman Sachs got caught that they've been spending money on prostitutes and like had whatever, 14 Learjets Mm -hmm. parked on the top of their building and their CEO takes their own elevator to the top floor and like all of these things, banking in a horrendous way kind of often comes out and says, well, yeah, but this is who we are. We are this in banking. And now there's some shift to Mm -hmm. being something Mm -hmm. else and they're making an effort. But the issue with gaming is gaming isn't saying, yeah, this is who we are. Gaming is saying we don't have a problem. And that is very, very different. So the first step that we need to get to in gaming is to come to a place of recognizing that we are not perfect. We have issues. 
and then at least make the decision on whether or not we want to resolve them or not. But at least get to the place of agreeing where we stand as an industry. And my take on why this is, is sometimes I even joke that there's like post-traumatic stress disorder within the gaming community. (laughs) But what I mean by that is the gaming community for many, many years was built on kind of almost disrespect, right? Like whoever are these like random gamers who have been playing games and they think they can make a business out of it. And like, this isn't real and the industry doesn't exist and it's not growing. And like nobody, even when, even when we did our IPO, there was like doubt on whether or not the gaming industry is a multi-billion dollar industry, which it is. And so I think when that, when that change shift happened somewhere in 2016, 17 into, oh my gosh, gaming is mainstream. And it's a massive multi-billion dollar business. Now there's built in this kind of protectionism. So now that there's acceptance, we're all kind of saying, don't come for me. Like, don't come for gaming. I've been there. I've been when everybody came for gaming and it wasn't like a real job and it wasn't like a real hobby and it wasn't a growing industry. And now you're trying to come for me again and criticize who we are and I'm not going to let you. Uh, And that's why I call it post-traumatic stress disorder because it's triggered by a previous feeling of perhaps disrespect or disregard or not being mainstream or not being kind of accepted as a real industry. So you fought really hard to get to a place where this is a real industry and it's accepted and it's growing and it's huge. So someone coming and now telling you you're not perfect is hard to hear. But the truth is, we're going to hear it. And it's either the rest of the world that turns around and says to the gaming community, what the hell are you doing? Or it's us who volunteer this conversation and say, hey, we know we're successful, but we're not perfect. And we got to start this conversation now because we want to get to a better place. So I think we shouldn't be afraid of challenging topics in gaming. The fact that we are now a massive industry doesn't mean we can't talk about the faults that exist in gaming, because surely there are faults in gaming and it's not dangerous. We can fix them, right? So, but I think there's a resistance to that. So usually what I hear is kind of like people say, oh, well, we have a really pragmatic approach. Like if a problem occurs, we address it. And this is such a cop-out because it's like what you're doing is you're putting responsibility on a victim, whether it's or survivor, whichever you want to say, but somebody who has been faulted or been treated wrong or with disrespect, you're putting responsibility for them on them to bring this up and resolve this rather than looking at yourself and saying, how am I building a culture where this doesn't happen to begin with? Or how can I prevent this from ever happening? So this pragmatic approach that companies take to me is a complete cop-out. It's the same as saying, oh, well, no women apply for our jobs. Or we just don't have non-Finnish people applying for our jobs. Well, I don't know. Did you write your application looking for a dude in Finnish? Yeah, I bet you don't have any women or non-Finnish people who apply for your job, right? So, and, and a lot of that is really clear. Some of it is more, I would say, hidden, really well hidden under the radar stuff. But it's obvious that it's there. We're just not really ready for a conversation about it yet. Yeah, there's so much to say about it. It's a very complex topic and I do see the resistance and I think like you already pointed out some key reasons for it where again start with awareness uh, like admitting as well that there's something and also openness for change because of course the ones benefiting from the system at the moment wouldn't want to change right why changing if everything is fine from uh, where they're sitting yeah and I think my other like my other biggest pet peeve in this is the the term veterans, which drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this whole concept of veterans in gaming is like driving me crazy. And and those who know me knows that I have been criticizing this term since even way before this, like back in 2015 and 16, mm-hmm. because it hits so home as a woman in finance. And the logic behind this whole veterans in gaming concept is that Where VC funding is going is to people who are so-called veterans. The term in itself is sexist, right? Because you Mm. usually refer to a veteran as somebody who has been in the military or war war veterans, which is indeed male-driven to begin with. So the term itself is complex or already guiding thinking. But even if we step away from that, because you can't have female war veterans these days, of course, is 
this idea that in order for you to get funding, you have had to have had something like 10 or 15 years or multiple companies behind you already where you worked at either at the executive level or you've already raised capital before and you have this kind of deep experience. Well, when we know that women haven't been able to have that, we have not had that, we haven't been funded, we don't have executive positions, how are we changing yeah. this? if our determination for who gets the next round of funding is based on the concept of those who already got it. And the logic of it is so bad too, because it's like, oh, let me think about it. So you have a team that already failed multiple times, but because they've done it successfully or like failed multiple times in multiple companies, they're more likely to succeed now. That's like the logic behind it, which Mm -hmm. to me isn't logical at all because it's like, Listen, it's failure is great and it is a great like backbone for creating success. But on the other hand, if I think about myself as potentially being a VC, like somebody who funds could give VC funding in my 40s or my 50s, I would think that where I want to place my money is on the generation that's young and new and innovative and hopefully smarter than me. So I would go to the 20-year-olds, not to the 40-year-olds, right? So that's at least my kind of thinking in this. So I have a hard time understanding, you know, the full principle behind this because I don't think it's, to me, it's such a complex term because I do think that it excludes, it's not an inclusive term. It's an exclusive term. It, it excludes those who would deserve funding, but just didn't play games 15 or 20 years ago. And I just, I find that to be very, very problematic. So what you just shared, I'm really happy also that among the guests in this podcast, I have talked to women that are creating funds for marginalized communities as well, more focused on female founders, or at least where they marginalized communities among the key people in the leadership, and also a founder of a, of a coding school as well, giving priorities to more diverse people that uh, are younger from different culture and backgrounds. So I'm also optimistic in this change. There are initiatives and there are people who really want to do something about it. And I believe this initiative as well, hopefully a decade from now, will really support and like more education. Also more actually investment funds run by women will help a lot to give more attention to this. And through this topic, really, I, I wanted to understand if you yourself have experienced these challenges, like all the things that you talked about challenge of when you are not a veteran in game or a woman in game that you have experienced yourself if you're willing to share a personal anecdote absolutely <laughs> i mean massively right so there was a lot of doubt in the beginning when i started at next games and fortunately you know i think the culture has changed and partially the culture has changed because the people have changed who, who used to work here but there was a lot of doubt in general i think towards me because I could not possibly, you know, whatever comment I would give in the beginning on something that I found was strange or looked like a not good idea or seemed like weird, then it would always be like, oh, but you don't understand gaming. Like you don't know nothing, you you know Mm -hmm. nothing about games. Uh, And gaming is completely unique from any other industry in the world. Like all of the financials that apply to every single industry in the world just doesn't apply here because we're gaming and you don't get it. So that was like, Mm -hmm. of course, every time like, all right, well, what do you say to that? When you're like, well, actually the same fundamentals apply in gaming as they do everywhere, but okay. So that's something I had to face. But then also I think the assumption surrounding who I was and what I did, I can tell you two terrifying anecdotes. So the first anecdote I can tell you is uh, when I started working at Next Games, we would always have... So I was at a cons- as a consultant at the time. I didn't work full-time for Next Games. And as a consultant, we had a setup with the CEO, with Temu, that every Tuesday morning I would come in at 9 a.m. and I would uh, sit in his office between 9 and about 11, and we would go through what the weekly financials looked like. We would look at the reports, what the situation was, and then I would go back to doing my other consulting stuff. So we just had slotted this like Tuesday morning briefing always for the two of us. And I heard later on that there was like questions and rumors about like, who's this woman that like shows up, you know, in, in Teemu Huhtanen's office always on Tuesday mornings. 
And I thought, if that doesn't describe the problem of the world, I don't know what does. Because if a man had sat for three and a half hours in the office, nobody would have lifted an eyebrow. So when I heard that later on, because I was then eventually hired to Next Games, and a lot of the people yeah. at Next Games were like, oh, oh, she, oh, she works in like finance. Oh, okay, you know. But the fact that that even became a topic of conversation just like made me pretty mad, of course, but it is what it is. And then the other thing I can tell you is the story about like um, when we were doing the IPO, I uh, we had some sort of like a investment meeting that we were doing. And at the time when we had that investment meeting, there was like a situation where I kind of, I guess, arrived first at the meeting and there was only the, I, I can't remember if it was the the investor or the analyst for the investor, but another guy that was at the meeting spot. And and he came up to me and he said something like, do you know if there, or is the, is the coffee coming? I think he said, or do you know if the coffee is coming? Is the coffee coming? He turned to me. So he thought I was the assistant or like the waitress, basically bringing, bringing coffee. And I was the CFO for the company getting listed. And I remember turning around and looking at him and going, I don't know if there's going to be coffee, but I like mine black, no milk, no sugar, and smiled at him. Oh. And he he was like completely red. And then, of course, you know, the board members and the CEO and you know all these people, bankers are coming into the meeting and I get presented as the CFO. And he looked like, I mean, he looked like he wanted to die. And uh, after the meeting, he came up to me and he apologized. And I remember telling him like, don't worry, it happens all the time. And I remember that he got even more like, just absolutely like somebody would have hit him in the face when I said that. And later on, you know, there, I have so many stories, I could do an entire podcast on these terrified stories that I have. But later on, I was thinking, you know, should I have done something to make him feel comfortable in that situation? And the truth is like, no, listen, if you're that prejudiced that when you walk into a room and you see a woman and your first reaction is to ask whether there's coffee coming, then fundamentally there is something that you need to think about what goes on in your brain because I think that sets the tone of expectations that I have to face, not sometimes, I have to face this effectively daily, all the time in my work. So that's something that still makes me sad, but at the same time, it's, you know, mm -hmm. and Finland is by no way excluded from this. Those who think Finland is like the beacon of equality and, you know, we don't have to face these issues are, I urge you to become a female CFO because you will very quickly see that that is far from the truth. Yeah. Thanks for sharing these anecdotes. And I, I heard many as well when I was part of Women in Games in Finland and little I knew because, of course, I, I had only my experience and it was I was okay, I would say so far, but the reality is far from just your personal experience. I think it's important to acknowledge and back to the comment, like, should we feel sorry for this? I think, no, there's some responsibility, of course, to be taken and education and awareness, like all this bias we have uh, where women belong in a room and what kind of position they have around the table. Yeah, okay. But uh, yeah, thanks, Anina. There are so many things I feel we should talk about. And probably <laughs> when I come to Helsinki, we have to go for a long dinner and talk much further about this. But for today, for the podcast, I like to wrap up the conversation with three same questions with all my guests. And uh, let me start with that one. So what are the next exciting things? What makes you excited for the next things for you? So I'm for, for next game side, I'm super excited that we are getting these two new games out and we're going to grow as a company. And I'm, I'm just so excited for the next chapter of next games. Like that's going to be amazing. And it's going to be amazing as a CFO to get to see that part of it. I mean, it's always so exciting to be part of a growth story. So I'm, I'm incredibly excited for that. So that, that's going to be amazing. Cool. My second question who inspired you in your journey to be the woman you are today? So absolutely, Susan Kuo, who is the COO and co-founder of Singular. So I met her very early on in my career, I think 2016. And she, I met her through another friend of mine, Nai Saturn. So, so she introduced me to Susan and she, she embodied a power woman in tech, right? So she's married with two kids and just like 
incredibly powerful, like strong woman, just absolutely unbelievable. So she has been the absolute inspiration for me on my journey, for sure. And my last question, if you had one thing you wish you could change right now in the industry, what would it be? The shared reality. So I think the first step for us to become better in gaming is that we would first sit down and agree on the problems that we have at our hand. And if we can get to that place, I think we can do anything in gaming. We just have to have a shared reality first. And I think what we talked about today is a step forward to sharing a bit more of this reality by bringing more light as well to the reality of over unspoken voice like yours. So I, I'm very grateful to have you today on the podcast and sharing so openly all the things, you know, from your journey, your personal anecdotes. Thanks again, Anina. Until the next time. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this new episode of Raise and Play podcast. If you enjoyed the content and want to support what we're doing, Rate and review the podcast, spread the word about it. If you'd like to contribute to the change too, reach out to me on LinkedIn for a collaboration. You'll find all the rest of the content on riseandplay.io, including my free masterclass on conscious leadership. Until the next time, 